it was at a time that I was living in New York that I really started noticing the disconnect between us as consumers, particularly in, in these large cities. The disconnect with nature, the disconnect with seasonality, uh, and the lack of availability of really uh, quality and flavorful product. And all of that kind of came together years later, about five or six years later, to to what is Natura today. How do you feel about transforming the food system? Today's guest, Franco Fabini, is the founder of Natura, a produce wholesaler and retailer founded 20 years ago in London and with outposts now in New York, Paris, Copenhagen, and now Melbourne. Natura's explicit aim is to revolutionize the supply of fruit and vegetables in order to shape the future of food for the better Sounds big. Franco, welcome to Australia and thanks for joining me on Dirty Linen today. Thank you for, uh, for having me. It's a real pleasure. So what is the problem with the food system the way it is? I guess the problem started uh, back in the 50s with the advent of supermarkets and it led us on a path to industrializing our food system. So <clears throat> on the, I guess on the ingredient side, we mass produce things like fruits and vegetables um, by way of uh, very large-scale industrial agriculture. And then the second component of that is that we um, highly process a lot of the food that we then consume, um, you know, anything that, uh, or a lot of the things uh, that we consume that are packaged um, or processed, even things like nut milks are highly, highly processed. So ultimately, what the, what's that, what that's done to, to us is at a, at a biological or human level, we have uh, reduced a tremendous amount of nutritional density from our food, which is obviously not, um, not healthy for us. Uh, also, the highly processed food uh, has, again, uh, negative uh, impact in terms of, of our health. Uh, and it also, the way that we produce this food, particularly again at the ingredient level, so the farming of be it protein or uh, vegetables, is very damaging. When we do it in this industrial, uh, in this industrial context, uh, we damage the soils and we therefore damage the environment um, and a lot, of the, a lot of the planet in doing so. Yeah, well, none of that sounds easy to turn around. So where does Natura come in? What, what are you guys trying to do? I mean, you're totally uh, correct. It's a, it's an incredibly ambitious uh, objective, and I think that obviously it's something that we on our own uh, cannot uh, dream to tackle on our own. It's something that we can be a big part of. And the way that we approach it is we believe that through flavor, uh, we can convince consumers to buy better and to eat better. Um, so, at, you know, in simple terms, if you have uh, an amazing peach, um, ideally, that joy, that emotional connection uh, is sufficient uh, to get you to want to eat really good peaches. Um, and then it's down to a company like Natura to ensure that we're sourcing that peach. And generally, when, you, when you're talking about a product that tastes really good, um, you could argue that for the most part, that product is farmed in a way that is beneficial to the environment. It's not entirely correct because you, you can use chemical agriculture to produce really good flavor. Uh, but generally, you're going to be uh, looking at farming practices and farms that are uh, far better uh, than industrial farming. So the idea is that through flavor, you stimulate the right kind of demand with the consumer that can then be fed back into the farming system to go and source product and stimulate the farming of even more product that is farmed in a way that is in harmony 
with the environment that supports, you know, a healthy ecosystem and that also produces nutritionally dense food. So it's all about stimulating the consumer. And so what does Natura actually do? So what we do is we build, uh, we do, we, if you think about the supply chain, so we do two very important things. On, on one side, we build uh, very cool and unique supply chains that are mostly direct. So we provide transparency. We obviously focus on flavor and therefore farming practices. And we bring that product into central hubs. So we kind of bring that product into a, a city like Melbourne. And then what we do on the other end is we find the right types of customers, be those restaurants or end consumers, uh, where we can get the customer to appreciate and value the product, pay the right price for it so that it can sustain this, uh, this healthy supply chain and essentially create a market and stimulate a market. And we do that through education. We do that through a lot of uh, content, um, through a lot of research. So we connect we, we connect the farming with the right consumer and build a very resilient and healthy supply chain. So very diverse, very diverse set of farmers and very diverse set of customers that understand what we're trying to achieve altogether. So in Melbourne, you've partnered with Kim from Northside Fruit and Veg, like a supplier that a lot of really good restaurants already have been working with. I, I know that like Kim Driver at Northside finds this partnership really exciting and you know um he's he's been a great voice for food in melbourne for for ages so i'm so on board with anything that that he thinks is great but i also have to confess that i feel a little disappointed that we couldn't improve this food system locally that we need people coming in from elsewhere like why is it why couldn't we do this ourselves like what do you have that we couldn't manage locally i think you i think you you could do it locally and Kim was doing it locally. I think it's more about, so my, my perspective is that we almost have a duty to partner uh, with like-minded businesses and there are very few of them in our, in our space. And by our space, I mean um, distributors, restaurant distributors. So I think that whenever we find uh, like-minded companies, which is said is very rare, it's almost our duty. And going back to your comment about how, um, you know, how enormous the challenge is to really uh, redesign or rebuild the food system. Um, hence, for me, uh, you know, the, this duty to partner with like-minded individuals because of the, the size of the challenge. So it's less about kind of the inability for Melbourne to do it on its own. And it's more about um, Kim and ourselves, Northside and Natura, believing that together we can achieve more than independently. Um, so ultimately, that, that really is what it's about. It's about going faster in many ways, and, and we don't have a huge amount of time. Um, so the joining of forces gives us more strength. It gives us an ability to do more uh, together. Mm, yeah, okay. Because I suppose some of the things that Kim's spoken to me about are, you know, just things that are sort of invisible to the consumer, like an ordering system, the way that things can be picked and packed more efficiently. Uh, I guess some of those those back-end operations that really do make a huge difference to businesses. I mean, is, is, are those the kinds of things that you're talking about? Those are, those are uh, a component. So because we are further along on our journey than Northside, we have built a lot of technology and we have gained a lot of experience uh, in going through the different phases that you go as a very kind of operationally heavy organization. So we can 
help Northside uh, and Natura Melbourne now. We can help the organization uh, do away with a lot of the mistakes that we made and put in a lot of the processes and systems that we know enable the organization to scale faster. Um, so that is fundamental because obviously one of the things that we talk about a lot internally um, at Natura and, and externally sometimes is the, the concept of financial sustainability. Right? It, it's great to be a business that at its heart is trying to make a positive impact on the world, but it needs to start with financial sustainability. We need to be able to pay our staff. We need to be able to pay our farmers. We need to have an economic model within the organization that sustains itself and that can generate the profits that can then be reinvested in furthering the mission. Um, so what we can bring to Natura Melbourne, to Northside here, through these operational improvements, through the expertise, the scale, is the ability to get to that kind of financial sustainability faster and be able to scale quicker through that. And what about the prices that people need to pay to have this, I guess, this connected and ethical supply chain? Is it about educating people that maybe things need to cost more at times? Absolutely. And I think they, they do. If you're going to farm uh, in the right way with the current model that we have um, in, in around the world, unfortunately, farming the right way costs more than the industrial farming. I'd say that um, I think it's important to note that part of the reason for that is that we don't price in the way that our economy works. It doesn't um, force companies to price in the, the cost of externalities. So if an industrial farm uh, produces a lot of chemical runoff and damages a waterway near it, we don't charge that uh, company um, the cost of cleaning up that waterway. And therefore, the full cost of that cheap industrial carrot um, is fictitious because ultimately we are subsidizing that uh, by the state and taxes actually paying for the cleanup of the environmental damage that they're causing. But anyways, that is where we are today. So ultimately, when you're farming in the right way, it costs more money. And it's fundamental that as consumers, and this goes both as consumers that are, you know, when we buy product to cook at home, when we go and sit down at a restaurant, and also chefs as consumers, um, we all need to uh, understand that if we want better quality food, we need to spend a bit more money on that food. I mean, it's just these are such big issues, and no one organizational person can solve everything, but there is a certain amount of privilege in the way that this works i mean do you think capitalism and the way it functions in general is in any sense compatible with a concern for the environment and and flow on impacts it's a, i mean it's a wonderful question i've got to say it's um i'm i'm hopeful and i guess i i think that is it compatible it's questionable whether it's compatible in its current form I think that I look at companies like Patagonia. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Yvonne Chouinard and, and what, uh, what they've built at Patagonia. And I do think that capitalism is a system that we have, so we need to figure out the way that we can use it for good. And I do think that capitalism in the right hands um, can be a force for good. And I'm very hopeful of the younger generations that are coming behind us that are growing up with a very different sense of the impact uh, that their life choices have on the planet. 
Um, and I believe that if you combine the power of uh, changing choices, changing habits, changing approach to consumption with, uh, again, a change in how companies utilize the capitalist system to try and revert the state that we're in as a, as a planet, which is goes you know well beyond agriculture and into kind of climate in general and and um, and other parts of, of our of our kind of weird uh, consumption habits uh, or excessive consumption habits. I do think that capitalism can be utilized in in the right way. So I know Franco that you use some of Natura's uh, profits for impact. Uh, in, uh, perhaps in some of the ways that you're, you're talking about and, and highlighting. Can you talk about what you do with some of the money that you make? Yeah, so we uh, what we started doing a long time ago when we first became profitable, um, kind of things opened up for us. We started realizing, hey, we've got, you know, we've got some resources. And all of a sudden we started um, encountering cases within our supply chain where someone wanted to walk away from the cooperative, right? So uh, a farmer in Sardinia, he was the, the, the first farmer that we, that we helped financially. A very small farmer was tied into a co-op and the co-op uh, had him locked in in a way that he couldn't get away from the cooperative. So uh, he desperately wanted out and we gave him the capital that allowed him to kind of buy himself out essentially out of the cooperative and, and regain his independence. Um, so what we do is we support farmers uh, by way of providing them capital um, to enable them to scale, to enable them to uh, build pack houses, acquire land. Uh, and we do that with farms that we believe are farming in ways that are beneficial to, to the planet um, and producing really uh, great product. So that is uh, one of the biggest uses of, of capital is just supporting people within our farming network. We also, during COVID, came up with an idea of building or setting up more than building a farm fund, which allows us to raise money and utilize also some of our profits, but also go out and raise capital um, through events and other um, other uh, yeah, other uh, avenues, which we then can grant. Uh, and we decided to utilize the farm fund specifically for young farmers under 35. Um, because there's a there's a real gap. Uh, young farmers are very underrepresented in in most of the regions. So that is a way of providing essentially free money to uh, to farms. Um, and then the third thing that we do is we uh, set up our own farms. So we have two farms, one in Sicily and one uh, south of London that we're just, um, we actually moved it from Cornwall to London, or we're sorry, to, to the south of London near Guildford. Um, so that is uh, being set up as we speak. So we should be uh, planting in the spring. Wow. It's, yeah, very exciting. I love this young farmer uh, focus. C have you got a, a success story, some, a story that you're really proud of? Um, I mean, it's very early days, but we, we uh, Charmaine uh, earned uh, our grant in the UK because uh, we did uh, part in the UK and, and, and part in France, but in the, U in the UK, Charmaine did, and she's a wonderful young farmer. She's farming. She managed to get just a couple of acres um, not too far from London in, um, in Buckinghamshire. Um, and she's producing some beautiful, beautiful produce. Uh, the really cool thing is that what we do with the farm fund uh, has nothing to do with our supply chain. So we don't, uh, it, you know, when, when we uh, gave the grant to Charmaine, she didn't work with Natura. She was just 
you know, farming and, and selling her product locally. Um, and then this year, uh, we started sourcing from Charmaine some amazing product. Um, and I thought that was a really beautiful story. And hopefully we can support her to continue growing. Uh, she's farming in a very holistic way with um, very little uh, soil intervention, which is um, something that's very cool and something that a lot of uh, young farmers are doing here in Australia as well, in, uh, in Victoria particularly. I'd love to talk to you about flavor a bit more because I know that that's, you know, I guess the selling point of Natura is that the produce that you source and sell is flavor first. But I feel like that's putting a lot of trust in consumers to know when, you know, the peach or the broccoli or whatever isn't as delicious as it could be. Like what kind, like how do you sell this idea of, of choosing food for flavor? I mean, some of it needs to be done face to face to some degree, right? It needs to be done whether it's in a store or whether it's at an event or, you know, it could be in partnership with a restaurant. But obviously, nothing uh, can be tasting the product. Um, the other thing that we do when we can't get in front or get the product in, in front of a customer is we, we uh, spend a lot of time on developing content. Um, and we are very, um, I'd say there's a lot of depth to Natura and there's a lot of depth to, um, our hunger for, for knowledge. Like we, we like to be able to go very deep in our knowledge because we feel that if you're selling a product that is a high quality product, you need to back that up with high quality service. And part of that is also the fact that you need to be knowledgeable in what it is that you're selling. So naturally, we do gather a lot of information and we're very hungry for, for knowledge, as I said. So we try and convert that into content that reaches the different consumers. So we speak in a certain way to the chefs and then we speak a different way to consumers to try and express how flavor, how we achieve flavor, or how a farmer achieves flavor in that specific product and ways that you can search for flavor. So we did a campaign, for example, on scarring um, and looking at, you know, particularly peaches and nectarines and the scarring that they get and how scarring is actually a sign of flavor and quality. Um, so we can do that through, again, I guess, uh, good content development, but ultimately there's nothing like tasting the product. Scarring like on the fruit itself? What, what is that? Exactly. So scarring happens, uh, can happen for a number of reasons. It happens in apples as well. You would have seen it. Part of it is var uh, varietal. So, you know, you'll have some apples that actually naturally develop uh, some scarring, some kind of russeting that you see, which you don't tend to see in a lot of the fruits that make it onto supermarkets, right? Where uh, what we've done is we've bred a lot of those um, peculiarities out of the fruits because supermarkets were asking for fruits that to them looked perfect, which to me look actually unnatural. Um, a scarring can also happen when, when a, um, for example, a branch scratches uh, a fruit in its early development. So it kind of just scratches the skin and then the skin, that part of the skin gets a bit broken and then it, it kind of, um, Creates a creates a scar the, the same way that our skin does, and then as it grows, you you you've retained the scar. Um, particularly in nectarines, uh, but in a lot of fruits, a lot of the scarring, which is a lot of the spotting that you see, uh, is also high concentrations of sugar. Um, high concentrations of sugar create some of the scarring uh, because they weaken the skin, or because the the it's where there's a high concentration of sugar, you get like a change of of coloration and the way that it reacts to the sunshine. So all of all of this scarring 
the way that I equate it is uh, it's a great indicator of the character that's been built in a fruit, similar to if you take a, I don't know why I always think of a sailor uh, who is out at sea a lot, you know, their face would be in many ways, a lot more interesting and intriguing to us because it would be kind of quite sun scarred and it would have a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, life would be on uh, present on, on that face in a way. Uh, and I think that character is the same that of, of what is reflected in fruit. So scarring is a fantastic indicator of quality and flavor. So mm. if you're ever selecting a peach or a nectarine, uh, find one that has scars because you're almost guaranteed to, to get better flavor out of, out of it. That's such a, a radical paradigm shift to think about produce as having character rather than being perfect because, yeah, supermarkets have really trained us into looking for these um, these supermodels lined up identically um, in rows on the shelves. So, yeah, it's I, I love it, but it feels like there's a lot of retraining to do of humanity to appreciate uh, things for their for their difference. But, yeah, it's a, it's a journey, I guess. Yeah, completely. I think you're right. There's a there's a huge amount of retraining and re-education that needs to needs to happen. And as you say, you know that kind of uniformity is totally counter. I mean, it would be incredibly uh, eerie if we were if we all looked the same, you know, and all uh, had the same hair color. And, and, and yeah, I mean, it's just it's not natural. It's not the way nature behaves to have that kind of uniformity. Yeah, it's so interesting. Something I sort of you know wrestle with when I think about this stuff is this idea of like the problem with nostalgia because I think when we you know a lot of people would think okay supermarkets are not great. There's a lot of problems with the way food is food is farmed and with the supply chain and where the money goes. So we, so we know we shouldn't be perhaps shopping doing our big shop there. But it's you know the but then the farmers market feels like this very nostalgic kind of you know this one on one relationship which I love. It's great, but it doesn't necessarily work for farmers who have to, you know, truck their produce around personally from place to place. Um, and then, you know, you, we, we concurrently have this idea that scale is evil and, and um, it takes us away from, you know, the, the, the source of things. Tech is impersonal. But, I mean, I'd love you – I know that you're using tech and scale to – in some ways return to this idea of, you know, imperfect produce that has heaps of flavour. But do you find that a, tr a tricky sort of balance um, when, yeah, when nostalgia is so much a part of the way people think food perhaps should be? Yeah, there, it is It is a tricky balance. And I'd say that it's a tricky balance, particularly with the with the market and with consumers, um, but I say that the market is in you know the the kind of ecosystem uh, and and the thoughts that people have on on sometimes what we do and whether Natura is big or not big and um, you know so it it definitely is a is it definitely is about striking a balance. I I do uh, agree with you that I think that there is a there is this nostalgia um, and it is important to be local. And, and I, I believe a lot, a lot in community and the power of community to get us back to a better place and a better harmony with nature. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's a lot of us on the planet. We consume a lot of food and you need a system that is scalable if we're really going to enact change uh, because those industrial farms exist for a reason and it's because we need to produce a huge amount of food. Um, I don't believe that industrial farms are the answer, uh, but also 
super tiny, um, you know, local farms and all of us shopping at a farmer's market is just not going to cut it either. That's way too much on the other extreme. So we need to find that balance. And that balance, as you say, requires an element of scale and it requires an element of utilizing technology uh, to help stimulate um, or to be a, be uh, a component of changing the food system. I don't think that technology in itself can radic- can can revolutionize the food system, but it's an enabler of it, and it helps um, get us in, 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 into a better place. So, Franco, what took you into this work? What what was what drove you to found Natura? I always had a connection to food, um, and I guess my my grandfather was an entrepreneur, and I never. I guess as a you know very young and, and immature, I, I always thought, oh, I'm going to do something on my own. Um, and later on in life, I realized that just thinking it and saying it, and just because uh, there was some of that in my family, it wasn't going to happen. Uh, so there was a, there was a component of wanting to do something entrepreneurial um, and starting a business. And then there was another piece where. Um, I had a very close connection with food that was very instinctive. I think a lot of it came from, uh, or comes from, from my father, who um, is a very, very uh, is, a, is a great cook, and had a lot of passion for it. Even though uh, we didn't live together because my parents got divorced at an early age, um, I think that a lot of that came from him. But I cooked a lot as I was getting into university and 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 uh, when I started living in New York and my, my first job in, in banking. Um, and over time, those two things kind of came together, this desire to do something on my own um, and this realization that what I needed to do was actually do something in food because it was the one thing that I didn't get bored about um, and get bored of. So I combined the two and it was at a time that I was living in New York that I really started noticing the disconnect between us as consumers, particularly in, in these large cities and the availab- the disconnect with nature, the disconnect with seasonality uh, and the lack of availability of really uh, quality and flavorful product. And all of that kind of came together years later, about five or six years later to, um, to what is Natura today. Right. Interesting. And so, you know, you, Natura Melbourne has, has launched. What practical changes or differences could we expect whether you know we're a farmer we're a chef or we're a a diner so i guess we could start with the farmers um we've already provided uh provided some support uh to a farm here they had some uh really bad flooding so I think what we'll be able to bring to the farming community is uh, a more proactive and even a more proactive approach uh, to the work that we all do in in that part of the business. Uh, So um, more support, um, a little bit more engagement, and obviously continuing the great work that Kim uh, has done over the last six years. So trying to go a little bit deeper in the way that we source, uh, and that's by providing Natura Melbourne with uh, more time or providing Kim, who at the moment is the primary um, the primary sourcing individual. Um, so being able to spend more time visiting farms. 
in terms of uh, in terms of the chefs, uh, I think that uh, our technology is going to improve the level of service that we can provide. I think the app is going to be a really cool development. We hopefully will launch it in Q1. So we have this uh, very neat ordering app which delivers a huge amount of content. So for me, it's more it's more the content than the ordering. So it provides real time information on products that are tasting really great, things that are coming out of season, how product is evolving, insights into farms. Um, um, so it's a very, very useful tool uh, to get much a, a much deeper level of information. So I think that's going to be a really uh, great um, a really great tool for for chefs. We're also going to be bringing some product uh, that comes from abroad. So a lot of the product that you find here in in Australia already, things like Italian olive oils and you know great anchovies. Uh, so we're going to be bringing in some products from our kind of international supply chain, uh, which are on a boat somewhere, uh, making making their way onto here. So I think that's going to be very cool for for chefs as well. And obviously, uh, as we broaden our sourcing with the farms, that's going to impact the range of product that we have for chefs. And we hope to push a little bit harder on the consumer side as well once we get a little bit more settled. So we still do some home deliveries, uh, but we want to um, push a little bit harder. And hopefully at some point, I would love to open up a store uh, here in Melbourne, but that's probably uh, not next year, maybe something in 2024. Mm. I think the the content that you speak about in the education, I dug around and found some of your newsletters and I have to say it, it, it does bring it to life. There was one that really struck, stuck with me. It was a, a pumpkin that was sweeter than a melon and you spoke about how the farmer grew it and why it was so sweet and then there was some ideas about how to use it and so I imagine if you're a chef sort of flicking through what's available and what's seasonal that you you might see a, a product that you had never seen before you didn't quite know how to use it you weren't sure how it would fit in your menu but then you know when you have that deeper inf- information then perhaps you do see a place for it I mean is is that sort of what you're going for? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think you you kind of captured it right there, and and you know I think that uh, fruit fruit and veg evolves uh, weekly. Like it, it really changes. It's very different to you know uh, protein or fish. Uh, you know, there's seasonality in 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 all foods, but you know. Fruit and veg is, is really a kind of daily, it's almost like a daily, we, we, we think about seasonality at Natura as a 365, you know, day continuum, not as like, you know, winter, spring, summer and fall. So for me, the more content that we can provide to chefs, the more information that we can provide to them that's really timely, uh, the better uh, service that we can provide because it enables them to engage with the product in an even in an even uh, greater way. And I I do a lot of cooking, and I think that's been fundamental to the way that Natura has evolved and how different different we are to our competitors. And I think in part because uh, I spend a lot of time cooking with the products that we source, uh, and even when I'm sourcing, you know, having a very similar mindset to the way a chef approaches uh, looking at a product. Um, it's helped me think about how to source better and also how to communicate uh, better to, uh, to chefs. And Franco, from your perspective um, on Australia, or certainly Victoria at this point, where do you think Australian food and farming sits? I'd have to say that to me, it sits uh, on par or right, right uh, below where Europe sits. Uh, I certainly feel that it's um, 
quite far ahead from the United States in terms of, and I'm making broad generalizations of kind of where I find that in terms of range and quality of product, when I'm, th- when I think about fruits and vegetables, uh, I think that generally it's very, very close, almost on par with, with Europe, uh, which I think is saying a tremendous amount because to me, kind of Italy, France, and Spain, uh, not to discredit a lot of other uh, great farming uh, countries, but those three, um, and then you have a couple uh, cultures in in Asia that do some fantastic farming, notably Japan. But those three really, um, the the breadth and uh, the breadth of of product and the quality of product is incredibly incredibly high in Europe, uh, and I'm uh, I think Australia is very very close to that. Uh, if not, if not on par, which is also down to the incredible diversity of climates and, and microclimates that uh, that the country has. Well, so long as we're feeding you well while you're here in Australia, Franco. Um, it's been, yeah, really uh, a real pleasure and so interesting to have you on the pod. Is there anything we haven't covered that you'd like to touch on? No, I think it's been uh, it's been really uh, really fun talking to you. Um, I no the the only other thing I could say is that I, I you know the it's my second time in Australia and I've got to say that I, I constantly I was in Sydney for a day um, earlier in the week and I, I genuinely incredibly impressed with the food scene here. I think it's uh, I visit I visit a lot of um, you know major cities around the world and I've got to say that particularly Melbourne is um, up there with one of the best cities in the world um, in terms of what's going on, the quality of the chefs, the quality of the ingredients obviously plays a tremendous part. But even uh, what you see beyond the restaurant scene, just what you see in terms of markets and products that people are producing, you know, for um, for retail, uh, it's a really, really fascinating uh, what's going on here. So I'm very excited about uh, being able to have a reason to come back here more often. Great. Well, thanks for being part of it and thanks for sharing with us today, Franco. Um, Yeah, really appreciate your time. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you.